0: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by
1: going to Blue BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is a special episode in memory of Prince Philip, who sadly passed away on Friday at the age of 99. Now, Prince Philip spent seven decades serving his country, his commonwealth, and his queen. But he also served in the Royal Navy during the Second World War, and he served with distinction. To take us through the key moments, we have the brilliant war historian Alex Churchill. Now, Alex has done some amazing research into Prince Philip, and she's found those acts of valour, those acts of bravery, those impeccable moments of brilliant decision-making that turned disaster into victory. He really was a remarkable man and I can't think of a better way to pay our respects than remembering his incredible wartime service. Hi Alex, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today?
2: Not bad. Bit of surprising news this morning. Bit of a potent day that we arranged to do this, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, it obviously wasn't planned in this way, and it is a sad coincidence that on the day that we wanted to speak about Prince Philip's war record, we hear that he has died at the age of 99. But I suppose we can make this into a memorial episode, can't we?
2: Absolutely. The man deserves many, many memorials and tributes for his public and military service as well. Very few people are going to work that hard for seven decades.
1: Yeah, you're not wrong. And yeah, let's focus in on the military service today, actually, because Prince Philip was a maritime man at heart, wasn't he? Where does this love for the maritime come from?
2: I mean, well, he's a grandson of Louis Mountbatten, so... For those that don't know, he was Louis of Battenberg, and he was at the head of the Admiralty on the outbreak of World War I, and he lost his job because he'd been born in Germany. didn't matter that he'd been naturalized at the age of 14 and gone to join the Royal Navy and served his entire career. Heartbroken has to step down at the beginning of the First World War. So that's one grandfather for him. He's a great grandson of Queen Victoria as well. But other than that, really, you'd you'd think it was more of a military army. I mean, he was born on an island, if that counts. He was born in Corfu, but not really obsessed with boats as a kid. He doesn't really have roots as a child. So where he ended up on summer holidays and what he ended up doing, I mean, yeah, boats were involved at some point, but the big relationship with Dickie Mountbatten comes much later. But nonetheless, they start looking around for what to do with him when he gets to a certain age. And they decide that, I mean, it's essentially, it's the same thing that George V did and the same thing that the Duke of Windsor had done. It was supposed to be a brief stint in the Royal Navy by way of part of his education. So the Greeks had a nautical college of their own, but his father was having none of it because from his father's point of view, he has served his country and then they've sacked him off two or three times and he's not having his son put through that. So Andrea says no. And he also says at this point, Philip, he says England is my home. So it's not really a stretch that it was the Royal Navy and not the Greek Navy that he went in for. I mean, obviously it's a much prouder tradition. I don't think people understand when you're talking about the Greek Royal Family, it was very new and very off the cuff like they literally just like a generation and a half before Philip had to teach courtiers how to be courtiers because it was all so new and it was transplanted in from the Danish royal family on the other side so yes he's Queen Victoria's great-grandson on one side But on the other, he's also a great, great nephew of Queen Alexandra. So through the Danish side. So the Greek royal family is quite a fluid concept. And for that reason, they don't have a lot of airs and graces. They're quite laid back. And it's sort of the funnest court to hang out at, I think. But his pedigree is undisputed. I mean, just his aunt. Alex was the last Empress of Russia as well. And that's why Philip's DNA was so key when they found those bodies in the woods near Ekaterinburg, and why he gave a sample to be able to identify them because of his close relationship with the Russian royal family as well. So although the Greeks are like baby-sized in terms of a royal family and in terms of tradition, his pedigree is not. So it's not surprising that he would serve in the Royal Navy either. So that's what they decide to do. And this is just before World War Two, But it's only ever supposed to be a small temporary part of his education it's not supposed to be a career so where
1: did he join up then does he go to dartmouth to the royal college
2: He does, and he's 17 when he gets there. Wow. Most of them would have been there since they were about 13, so he's a late arrival. But he's good, and he's good on his own merits as well. He's done really well. He's surpassed these boys, and doesn't go down well with all of them. But throughout his training, he shows up really well, and he sort of surpasses these boys that have been there for several years. He is easygoing. He's fun. He's a good leader. He shows good potential for leadership. He also has a propensity to be a bit overbearing as well. But because he's so self-effacing. It's kind of mitigated. So yes, he can be a bit boorish, but he's usually so much fun that you forgive him for it. It's not like that's him all of the time. But yeah, the Royal Navy gives him the opportunity to get really stuck into something beyond a boarding school environment. And he does really, really well. And he's doing his training and he's still in this little education period in the Royal Navy when World War II starts. And he very much for that reason wants to get involved in the war.
1: Right. Okay. So this brief stint in the Royal Navy and some early years training quickly turns into a bit of an impromptu vocation as the war kicks off and he's thrown into a combat position. Where does he start in the Royal Navy?
2: It just ends up a world tour as well. I don't think he's ever left Europe before this. And he's literally, he's going to end up going all over the planet on the basis of the war. So he's a neutral when the war starts as a Greek prince. And I don't think many people realise that he's actually quite close to the throne as well. He's got these ageing uncles. They've had a monarch that has no male children. So I mean he was born sixth in line, but it's looking possible that he might end up on the throne one day. So he shouldn't really be going to war with the Royal Navy as a Greek prince. But he really wants to. They can't naturalise him either because they suspended that process for people until after the war. But Dickie Mountbatten pulled strings and that's why he's allowed to participate in the war. But because he's a neutral, for the purposes of the beginning of the war, he carries on his training. But when he does get involved and go to sea, it's in roles that will not see him in conflict areas. So it will respect his neutrality as a Greek prince. And for that reason, first off, he joins Ramillies in February 40 at Colombo as a midshipman. They're escorting troop ships between Australia and New Zealand and Egypt. And really, it's a very low-key assignment, uncomfortably hot. For some reason, that ship was just unbearably hot and uncomfortable. So that was his first experience. But straight away he shows this enthusiasm and zest for life. So whenever they land up somewhere, he wants to get off the ship and go and explore and go and see things. I think they get to Australia and they have some time off the ship and he goes off and spends four days working on a sheep station in land somewhere. So he's very active. That's something they really got right in the first two seasons of The Crown is how dynamic he was and how active he was. And not just for expensive things like flight and that, but just for experiences and life experiences. In May, they move him to HMS Kent. This is a cruise um, based on the China station. But again, he's not supposed to be seeing any active service there. He sees South Africa, India. But there is one instance where he thinks they might actually get some action and he's quite excited. I think he writes in his journal, we have something to look forward to. There is an enemy raider in the Indian Ocean and there is just a chance our tracks will cross. And they don't sadly for him. So he does want to be involved. But for the opening spell of the war, certainly it's politically inexpedient to let him.
1: But you're not wrong. He really does get a bit of a chance to travel the world early on, doesn't he? And no one has an easy war. But when it comes down to 1940, it sounds like he's probably got the easiest war of all. When does it come serious for him?
2: So in the summer of 1940, things start to change. But personally, he's going to move in August for the Kent sister ship, which is the Shropshire. And that's patrolling. So he's just changed areas. They were patrolling between the Red Sea and Durban. So just up and down. But then Italy come into the war in June 1940. And the Greeks are hopeful of staying out of it. But Mussolini wants to show Hitler what he can do. And he thinks Greece is an easy target. So the two key dates for Philip are on the 15th of August. An Italian submarine sinks a Greek naval ship. But the big one is the 28th of October that year when Italy invades Greece. So that's it. Gloves off. The Admiralty no longer have to hold him back. No requirement to keep him somewhere quiet anymore. And at the beginning of 1941, he goes off and he joins HMS Valiant at Alexandria.
1: Oh, right. So it's at this point that actually he almost has to be put in a combat role because if he wants to be king one day, then he needs to be seen for fighting for Greece
2: don't know how much he wanted to be king but certainly he might be king one day and yes the idea that he no longer looks good if he's having a cushy war and I don't think he would have wanted to continue to have a cushy war I think we know from seven decades of his demonstration afterwards that he was all about public service and all about his country and serving his country and I think he would have wanted to do that to the maximum of his ability and he does It's interesting that he's a midshipman. Does he stay
1: a midshipman while he's over back fighting for Greek sovereignty?
2: So he gradually gets promoted as we'll find out. So he's had four ships in 11 months when he joins the Valiant. It's an older battleship, but it has undergone quite a rapid modernisation. Three days after he joins it, they're sent to bombard the Libyan coast. He says the whole operation was a very spectacular affair. Then it's off to Sicily and he sees some war. Then he sees the Southampton blow up and the gallant getting its bow taken off by a mine. So he's starting to get serious now. And then he put in his journal and then two torpedo bombers attacked us, but a quick alteration in course foiled their attempt and their fish past our port side. So a close shave early on by March that's when he's starting to get closer to home. So they're escorting British troops from Alexandria to Crete and Piraeus to bolster Greek defences ahead of what they project to be the German landings. And that's when you get the action at Cape Matapan.
1: Yeah, this is the one I hear over and over again. Whenever anyone mentions Prince Philip and the Second World War, they're like, you need to look into the Battle of Cape Matapan. It's here that he really kind of earns his crust and becomes a bit of a war hero, doesn't he?
2: He does, yeah. And it's all about a searchlight. This is his job in this battle. So the background to the battle, 27th of March, they were due to go ashore for leave. But on the Thursday morning, they get these rumours starting to go around the ship saying that some Italian cruisers had gone to sea. So under the cover of darkness, they slip out along with war spy, formidable and Barham and nine destroyers. So there's a British force goes to sea. And then what they're actually being sent to do is look out for this Italian fleet, which is going to try and take out a convoy headed for Piraeus. So important. Worked. But what happens is a plane spot them the next morning, and the opposing force is like a battleship, more than half a dozen cruisers and a couple of destroyers as well. As I said, he's on the searchlight. So this is in the Peloponnese, and they engage at long range and spend the afternoon chasing them. But then the big thing about this battle, Cunningham on Warspike, decides he's for a really bold move. He decides he's going to go for a night action, which is not easy, but the Italian ships are totally not set up for it. And it's a terrifying experience, it must have been. So his job throughout the battle was to cling on to this searchlight. And what he was supposed to do was light up an enemy ship so that they could range on it and aim at it And then they would explode it and try and take it on. And then he would swing on to the next one. What's actually really funny, so he lights up the first one, he says, and they fire at it and they light it up. And it's not even crossing his mind that there might be more. He's so excited in the moment that they're telling him, go left, go left. And that's when he suddenly realises, like, oh, crap, there's more of them, and starts moving the searchlight about. I mean, it's not only
1: lighting the ship up, but also lighting him up as well. Is there a riskier position than being the one who's standing behind the searchlight that everyone is now aiming at?
2: It's not comfortable, is it? I mean, I've got some of it in his own words. and uh, He's talking about swinging the light onto another ship, and he says she was illuminated in undamaged condition for the period of about five seconds when our second broadside left the ship, and almost at once she was completely blotted out from stem to stern. He says more than 70% of the shells must have hit. The only correction given by the control officer was left one degree, as he thought we were hitting a bit far aft. So when the enemy had completely vanished in clouds of smoke and steam, we ceased firing and switched the light off so very exciting scary as well and yeah not definitely definitely no longer having a cushy war
1: but also showing that ability to be able to perform under really serious pressure not being overwhelmed by the excitement not doing anything foolish but being able to keep his cool under pressure and he's awarded a few medals for this isn't he
2: He is, yeah. This is one thing that he is really good at, is thinking under pressure. And we'll see later on. I know you're going to ask me about HMS Wallace as well. And also as well, there's another instance with a downed bomber as well in the Pacific. And yeah, when it hits the fan, he's a good man to have on deck because he's very good at thinking on his feet, thinking quickly and addressing any kind of, like, this is this thing about naval warfare, isn't it? It's so random. And this is like the pride of the Royal Navy, isn't it? Is that you have to have imagination as well to cope with any circumstance. And I think he demonstrates throughout the Second World War that he has that ability. It's a good moment for them in the Mediterranean, but that's not a good period for the Allies. Within a few days, Germany's going through Greece. Rommel's doing really well and pushing the Brits back on Cairo. And the Germans. Germans. Germans are establishing air superiority over the central Mediterranean. So by May, we're looking at an all-out attack on Crete. And again, Valiant is sent to intercept the German landings.
1: Okay, tell us more. What happens next in Prince Philip's
2: war? So I just want, you know what? I could tell you, but he left a really brilliant journal entry that tells us. And I think we don't have him anymore. And I think we should let him do it in his own words. So his journal entry for the 22nd of May, 1941 says... As we came in sight of the straits, we saw Nyad and Carlisle being attacked by bombers. We went right in to within 10 miles of Crete, and then the bombing started in earnest. Stuckers came over, but avoided the big ships and went for the crippled cruisers and destroyer screens. Greyhound was hit right aft by a large bomb. Her stern blew up, and she sank about 20 minutes later. Gloucester and Fiji were sent in to help them. Three ME109s attacked war as dive bombers, and she was hit just where her starboard forward mounting was. When we got about fifteen miles from land, sixteen stuckers came out and attacked the two cruisers. Gloucester was badly hit and sank some hours later. The fleet then had some more attention, and we were bombed from a high level by a large number of small bombs dropped in sticks of twelve or more. One Dornier came straight for us from the port beam and dropped twelve bombs when he was almost overhead. We turned to port and ceased firing, when suddenly the bombs came whistling down, landing very close all down the port side. It was only some time later that I discovered we had been hit twice on the quarterdeck. One bomb exploded just abaft of the quarterdeck screen on the port side. Another landed within 20 feet of it, just inboard of the guardrails, blowing a hole in the wardroom laundry. There were only four casualties, one killed, three injured. (laughs)
1: Okay, Tristan, you got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world we've got the big names
2: it's one of those great things Pompeii. it's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction
1: we've got the big topics the man destroys seven legions in a day no one in history has done that subscribe to the ancients from history hit wherever you get your podcast from oh and russell Crowe, if you're listening we would love to have you on the ancients spread the word people spread the word That is incredible. Is that the closest he gets to being sunk?
2: No, no, we'll get to that. So at that point, they need repairs. So they go off to Alexandria. He gets some time off and spends some of it with his Greek relatives, has a bit of a jolly. And then I think, hilariously, I think this is the point where some of their Chinese stokers do a runner and dessert and they don't have enough. So he does a four-day run as a stoker shoveling coal. I think that's at that point. And 1941 as well is also key on a personal level, because I think the Queen had first met him when she was 13. But this is when you could arguably say that the idea of a courtship begins. Tentatively, she's still very young, don't forget. And during this period for him, there are other loves, there are other women. But I think it's interesting that so this man turned heads. He really did. Prince Philip as a young man was hot, Good looking chap. He was a good looking young man. But it's interesting that there's an author, Eid, who did a book on him as a young man. And when he was out researching some of the women that he did know during the First World War and that he did date, they said that they were always very surprised by these later things of him being a manslut. basically they said that that just didn't match the man they knew <laughs> he actually was all quite chaste and he was very respectful and he was a nice okay. young man as well so those women at least were not impressed with those sort of later projections i mean was it just tabloid journalism later on after he became involved with the queen or people thought that he would become involved with the queen who knows but sort of 1941 that there, there's some meetings when he's in the same place as her But for the purposes of the war, the next big thing is June 1942. He goes to HMS Wallace and you were asking about his promotions and he's a sub-lieutenant by now, so he has started to be promoted.
1: Okay, but he's still very young, so that's a pretty high rank for a young man.
2: Yeah, it's going to get higher as well. So for the purposes of this, they're based out of Rosyth, escorting convoys of merchantmen down to Sheerness. And this was known, this stretch of water, as E-Boat Alley. It was quite dangerous, not to mention bombers as well. So German submarines, bombers as well, and just mayhem of all these ships trying to get up and down the coast. There was an incident where they uh, one ship inadvertently ends up ramming Wallace and hurting three of the men. So yeah, he's... Basically, serving in British waters now, but it doesn't mean it's any less hairy than when he was in the Mediterranean. In October 42, he's promoted again. And what you're saying about his age at 21, he's a first lieutenant, and that's one of the youngest of that rank in the Royal Navy. And he's earned it, I think. I don't think that there's anything nepotistic in that promotion. And just by describing the stuff that he's already done, he's earned it.
1: Yeah, I think that's what surprises me most when you said. He comes in, he's obviously a very good cadet, one of the best in his class, comes in as a a midshipman. And I think that really pays some sort of respect and honor to his character, doesn't it? That he's able to rise up the ranks so quickly. Like you say, not because of nepotism, but because this guy has had one hell of a hard war now.
2: Yeah, he's blooded in now. He, But I just want to diverge on his character a little bit. Yeah. So yes, he's brave and he's dashing and he's handsome, but war hurts. It really does. And he loses a friend in the winter of 1942 called Alex Werner who's killed in North Africa. And he doesn't find out straight away. And he's really angry that he wasn't told straight away and that nobody sent him the news. He was at sea. But what we do have is the contents of a letter that he sent to Zia, Alex's mother. And I just think it's really quite beautiful because it's that departure of innocence that so many men suffered in the First and Second World Wars where they realise that they're not kids anymore. and that I remember we had a friend that was killed in a car accident at 17. And that first youthful realisation that life is not never-ending And that it is fragile is quite a hard thing to take and in the context of the war 10th of january 1943 he writes to alex's mother ever since i got the telegram from uncle dickie i've been in a daze alex filled a place in my life that was very important to me he filled a place of a brother and for that alone i'm eternally grateful to him as the older boy he was a guide and a pillow and in great many ways i tried to model myself on him as i grew older i was able to find many of my shortcomings by just comparing myself to him And in some cases, I managed to put them right. It's not easy for me to try and say what I thought of him because there are no words which can describe a friendship between two boys. Those things just are and one does not stop to think why. Dear Zia, I know you will never think very much of me. I am rude and unmannerly and I say things out of turn which I realise afterwards must have hurt someone. Then I'm filled with remorse and I try and make it right. And I just think we all know him as an elderly man and to sort of see that hurt, fragile young man who's in the middle of a war as well and to see a display of sensitivity like that, I think that's a side that we don't often think of when we think about Prince Philip.
1: Yeah, we always see him represented as a sometimes quite rude, curt man with a sense of humour that is a bit like Marmite, I suppose, and a little bit controversial. But hearing you read his words... I think you hear someone who perhaps understands themselves and is far more feeling than is put across in the media.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And also as well, even more so after... I don't want to waste time on this, but The Crown has really, Uh, I think, sold him short mm. with what is essentially a pretty shameless and disrespectful pantomime portrayal that Tobias Menzies should know better because it's painful to watch. Because it is just ridiculous. And I think he doesn't bring any semblance of depth of character to that role. I think the guy who played him in the first two series did. And I know that the Queen saw the first series and thought it was great fun. But I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think that things like that don't help because people appear to think it's a documentary.
1: Yes, which even the actors themselves now come out and say very clearly it is not a documentary. It is a work of fiction. But... We're not here to deal in the fiction. We're here to deal in the fact of Prince Philip's war record. So take us into 1943.
2: So we've reached the one that I know you've been angling for, which is HMS Wallace and the Allied invasion of Sicily, where they covered the Canadian landings. So on the 8th of July, they come in for the attention of German bombers who pick them up. And it's thanks to Philip that they evade them. So essentially what happens is they realise that they're going to be targeted that night and that they're in for a bombing. So what he does is have them fashion a wooden raft and put a smoke float on each end and send it off the side of the ship. So this flaming debris is now floating in the water. And then what they do is run off, cut all their engines, obviously lights are out and drift. And it worked because the enemy bombed the raft instead and there's a fabulous tribute to his actions on that by a guy named harry hargreaves who actually served and was there when this happened tell us what harry said so harry hargreaves describes the approach of the enemy bombers. He says, the sound of the aircraft grew louder until I thought it was directly overhead and I screwed up my shoulders in anticipation of the bombs. The next thing was the scream of the bombs, but at some distance the ruse had worked and the aircraft was bombing the raft. I suppose he was under the impression that he had hit us in his last attack and was now finishing the job. And he goes on to say, Prince Philip saved our lives that night. It had been marvelously quick thinking, conveyed to a willing team and put into action as if rehearsed. I suppose there might have been a few survivors, but certainly the ship would have been sunk he was always very courageous and resourceful and thought very quickly you would say to yourself what the hell are we going to do now and philip would always come up with something how do you even think of that where's that in the manual when you're doing your training this is pure royal navy of the nelsonic era this is just literally some sticky back plastic and some stuff you found on a deck somewhere and fashioning it into some life saving that's proper hornblower stuff isn't it but in second world <laughs> war
1: it is it's proper hornblower stuff. Now, that is a series I would watch. If they were going to do a prequel to The Crown, I'd watch that one.
2: Yes, definitely. So, yeah, that's really his big moment of the Second World War as far as a lot of people are concerned. But he does have one more ship that he sees out the war on as well. But before we get to that, I think we should probably pick up and just say now that in terms of the Queen noticing him, she's fallen for him by this point. And who wouldn't, frankly, But it's interesting because we get to the point now where George VI and Queen Elizabeth are a little bit worried because she's very young. And this is the first man she's met, really, but she's besotted. And he doesn't really have a public profile in Britain. But he starts to be noticed in the spring of 44, he goes over to Whelp, which is another destroyer. And this is going to be his last ship during the Second World War. And at first they're based at Newcastle. And he's just sort of going about the town doing his own thing but certainly the female half of Newcastle has started to notice this dashing young officer walking around and then everybody gets word that there's a prince in their midst but in terms of the courtship at this point outwardly at least he's still very much the kind of no-nonsense Philip that we think we know where he says he's not up for anyone interfering what will be will be and we'll just see what happens which I kind of like about him.
1: Okay, so there's rumours going around that he might have a little bit of flirting going on with Princess Elizabeth. But what does his family think of this? And perhaps more importantly, what does the British royal family think of his family? Because there's some, let's just say it, there's some Nazis on Philip's side, aren't there?
2: Yeah, people love this. Both of his sisters were married to somewhat Ardent Nazis, one was SS, one was SA. And it's overblown. Should we talk about something else? Should we talk about his mother instead? Because people love talking about the Nazi relatives. At no point did he ever display any, as far as I know, any sympathy with the Nazi cause. I mean, he very nearly got pulled into that whole situation when they sent him they wanted him to be educated by this German Jew who had this school. But then he started being persecuted and actually he set up Gordon's term, which is where they sent Philip eventually. So although he almost ended up being educated in Nazi Germany, escaped by the skin of his teeth without being indoctrinated into any of that but what people don't talk about is the fact that his mother Alice who suffered greatly from issues with her mental health by the time he was 10 he didn't really have a family she'd been institutionalized his dad was off doing his own thing he was being banded around different relatives spent a lot of time with Uncle George who was like a father to him spent a lot of time with his grandmother Victoria so he hasn't had a lot to do with his mother but she was not institutionalized anymore in the second world war she kind of living quite a poverty very religious life in Greece. And she's actually was awarded the title Righteous Among Nations. And that is the same title that Oscar Schindler has as well. And it's in part for the work she did in protecting Jews in the Second World War. So when people go, oh, when his brother in law's Nazis, I always go, yeah, but you know what his mum was? So yeah, his mother is a deeply interesting character. I was kind of glad that they gave her a bit of a plot arc in the crown, because I think she deserved it, even if it was just the crown. But she was a good woman.
1: Yeah. And I think that he thought a lot of her, didn't he?
2: He absolutely did. He thought a lot of his dad as well. They weren't especially close, but his dad actually dies in 1944 in December. And he's pretty heartbroken. There's someone who's serving with him at sea at the time who says like, you'd have maybe been surprised to see how much it did affect him. He really did think a lot of his father. And that was a big wrench as well in the middle of the war. But nevertheless, he's off to the Pacific now.
1: OK, so bring us through to these final stage of the war. What happens to Philip in the Pacific? He's gone around the world at this point. What's going on in the Pacific?
2: In the Pacific, he's part of a destroyer screen for bombing raid on oil refineries is one of the things he does with Whelp. And this is the point where he rescues two men from a downed bomber. This is also the point where, you know, I've just put it up on my Twitter, that fabulous picture of him with the big blonde beard.
1: Yes. Yeah. What is the story behind the beard?
2: Oh, it sent many a heart racing in Sydney when they stopped there. <laughs> uh, he just grew a beard. I did the same
1: thing last year. you got to grow a beard at some point. You've got to see what it looks like.
2: And he did. And people are saying that Prince Harry looks like him with a beard. But I don't know if you saw as well, I tweeted a picture of him. He was 12 and he could be William's twin. It's uncanny. Wow. But anyway, they're serving in the Pacific and they hear a mayday from a stricken bomber. And Philip acts very quickly, activates the search and rescue for Whelp and they rush off at full speed. He directs the vessel to where the bomb has gone into the water and they've had trouble getting their life off up and they've been in the water for 20 minutes and he brings them on board, he's fed them, clothed them. They've gone on a massive bender in Sydney, I think, when he gets back there with them. And 60 years afterwards, they actually did get him back together. I think the names were Dickie Richardson and Gus Halliday and it was a Radio 4 thing. It's called a Wright Royal Rescue where they reunited him with these two pilots. It was very unfortunate for the rest of the crew From the bomber were caught by the Japanese and they were at Changi and unfortunately they were all beheaded. But he managed to save two of them, so that was another bit of bravery on his part and another bit of quick thinking as well. But so he's with the British Pacific Fleet, which doesn't get a lot of attention actually. If you want a really good book on that, Will Iredale's Kamikaze Hunters is brilliant. If people want to know more about what the British are doing in the Pacific, because we don't really get a look in with the Americans. But he's at sea on VJ Day. Actually, they were on their way to help invade Japan when the bomb was dropped. And they had just got to Guam, I think, when Nagasaki was hit as well. But nonetheless, Whelp was one of the first Allied ships to enter Japanese waters. They were escorting a US flagship into Tokyo at the beginning of September. And he actually is on the flagship and he watches the Japanese surrender. And that's the end of his war. Well, you say that they're then put on collecting and repatriating POWs. So it's actually, I think, January 1946 before he comes home to a very uninteresting job after all that. So pretty much from the outbreak to the very last day.
1: Well, what a remarkable naval career. I've done some reading around this, and one which I think, by the sounds of it, he would have potentially liked to have continued There's Some have said that he may have even been able to rise up to the rank of first sea lord, just because of his natural aptitude for the job and his passion for it as well. Do you think there's any kind of credence in these rumours?
2: I think he made a choice. He made a choice to become... A consort instead and I think that there were possibly many days when he regretted that choice not regretted marrying the queen but it's not an easy thing to do to be a part of the royal family I think we've seen recently it's you have to give up a lot of yourself and what you might personally want to do and want to achieve in the cause of a sort of greater purpose and I think it's quite noble I think there are times possibly when it hurts a lot and did it mean that he would not shine himself ever more after that? I mean, yeah. He's entered into a partnership with Her Majesty instead and he'd done a different job and done it very well. I mean, he only retired a couple of years ago. Like I say, seven decades of service for your country. A lot of people that slag off the royal family can't say that they'll ever do that, that they'll ever contribute to something for that length of time. And when people say, I look in his pictures with his naval medals, and I just think, I wonder how many people realise he earned every damn one of them. There's nothing ceremonial about Philip. I think he was a very dynamic young man and a very brave young man. And I'm glad that we've shone a light today on his war work and talked about a period of his life that doesn't involve him being a very elderly gentleman.
1: Yes, and of course, our thoughts are with the royal family and with the Queen, because like you say, seven decades of service, not just to the country, not just to the Commonwealth, but to the Queen as well. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. Where can people read more about this? And I believe you've got your own royal project on the go at the moment.
2: Yeah, I'm actually writing a book about the relationship between George V and the Duke of Windsor, access to the correspondence and papers. well i will have when windsor castle is reopened obviously it's not going to be anytime soon the queen's been isolating there with prince philip for the whole of covid so the royal archives is part of the private residence so as soon as i can get back in i'll be doing that i really would recommend philip ead's book about young prince philip there's going to be a lot of bump getting released now but if you want something that's very well written and not written to cash in then this was released a few years ago. And it's very good. It's very readable history. It's not a huge book, but it just covers up to the marriage. So I'd really recommend that one.
1: Yes, go for the books that have been written over the last few years, not the ones that come out straight away now to cash in on a sad occasion. And of course, you can listen to Alex on History Hack, your podcast, which I've been on, which is fantastic. And on Twitter as well. Where can they follow you on Twitter?
2: At Churchill underscore Alex. We're going to have like a kind of a wake in our virtual pub for Prince Philip where we talk about his life and his career and different aspects of his work. Things like modernisation, probably talk about World War II again, talk about his childhood, talk about the context of the Greek royal family and his being exiled as a baby and things like that. So we just thought we'd raise a glass to him in our own way. So that'll be coming up in the next week or so, I would have thought.
1: Amazing. Well, I'll be listening. Alex, thank you so much.
2: Thank you we